Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to a very special episode of Deep Dive. So we're bringing back former guest Phil Brown. He was the producer and engineer on a lot of things. He wrote a great book about it called Are We Still Rolling? But what he did that we're going to talk about today is working on the Talk Talk album Spirit of Eden. It was the band's fourth album and it was very transitional for them and for the... This is one of the most kind of noteworthy productions ever. The way that it was made, the really unique way they went about it, the there's never been anything like it. There had never been anything like it before or since. I've recently been reading a book about this, not just Phil's book from, from before, but that Ben Wardle book, Perfect Silence, about Mark Hollis that we had Ben on here earlier this year to talk about. I finished that book and it is amazing. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a whole section based on just the creation of this album, which is unlike anything else. So I had to bring Phil back on to talk about it. It's really one of the most unique albums and recording experiences that have ever happened. Um, if you're new to Talk Talk, I hope you learn a lot. If you're not, I hope you learn some things about this that you didn't already know, because it is a masterful piece of art. All right, here's Phil. Well, uh, thanks for doing this with me. I wanted to ask you to do this a long time ago, and uh, it feels like a daunting task to me to talk about <laughs> this particular album. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, but you're, for better or worse, you're like you're almost a spokesman for Talk Talk at this point because hardly anyone else will talk about it. No, I mean. Um... It's hard to know, you know, the politics of any band or any collection of people is hard to know, but it all started to, I guess, unravel in the, in the mid nineties when Tim and Mark stopped communication and I did Mark's solo album. And then yeah. in the early thousands, um, Lee and Paul had already left Keith. Um, Tim had nothing to do with anyone. Uh, Mark eventually left Keith. Uh, so it's it's um, there's a lot of kind of yeah, I, I yeah. think in hindsight, and, and reading that um, fantastic book, Ben, um, a silent something, but it was perfect uh, silence. Perfect I've got it right silence. here. I mean, yep. Such a great book. Um, yeah. and I think he does capture Mark Hollis because mm. on Facebook now, and it's 35 years since Spirit of Eden, and although they were failures at the time, you know now they're these kind of classic albums or whatever and um on facebook i mean there's a lot of people that just think of mark as this kind of god yeah and it was very interesting to read that book and hear how many other musicians writers people involved got a similar treatment um than i did you know where they promise you stuff which doesn't happen yeah I mean, mark was a you know he was obviously a genius i mean you have to separate him i think from the person to the music you know the music was astounding and he was 98 percent right on everything yeah. he went for you know where right him and i because it was the album you know was basically made once we'd got lee's drums down was tim mark and myself and the assistant sean you know mm -hmm. yeah i mean Tim, much more flamboyant and would just kind of blow things out. But huh. it was Mark who had, the, in a way, the final say. We all yeah. ended up like looking to what Mark had to say because it was his kind of baby, you know. Yeah. Um, 
there's uh, two he, things. It wasn't easy, you know. Yeah, there's two major takeaways. I'm almost done with the book, and two of the things that I keep coming back to is number one, I'm not sure I even like Mark Hollis. I, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. he he seems uh, like. Well, he doesn't suffer, seem to suffer fools at all, and he doesn't seem to be particularly sociable. He seems like he's probably really funny and cool. I don't know about nice, but maybe sort of funny and cool if you're in his inner circle, if you're yeah. under, if you're on the same wavelength as him. Yeah. Otherwise, he probably has no patience for you. The other thing that I um, keep coming back to is I think here this guy who's being depicted as sort of a like I said, sort of a prickly character, not entirely. I mean, he's got, he's got great things too, obviously, but a little bit of a prickly character who writes and records such soulful, gut-wrenching music. They seem at complete odds with each other. I know, but that's, that, in a way, that's not unusual. You know, take somebody like yeah, John Martin. That, John, John Martin, Martin is exactly who I was thinking of. Yes, yeah. I mean, he he made these most beautiful songs and, and most amazing lyrics and these love mesmerizing albums. And yes. yet he was a tough guy to deal with, you know, whether yeah. it was his wife, whether it was girlfriends, whether it was other musicians. I mean, he was tough. Yeah. And, you know, Mark never got physical, but his verbal um, kind of humor, as I've said many times, but I mean, it was very... Uh, intense and damaging for certain people at certain times. So, you know, you have Lee. Well, Paul left after Spirit of Eden because I think he got put through the mill. I don't think he felt he got treated that well. No. So he went, okay, I'm out of this. You know, Lee no. hung in there and was paid as a kind of session guy to do laughing stock. And, well, I mean, it's tricky because, but I mean, it almost destroyed the guy. It had such a damaging yeah. effect. And it's it's very odd to try and explain this, but it was all based around what was a once humour. So no one's pushing down the button and going, fuck off, Lee, yeah. you don't know what you're doing. You know, it was none of right. that. It was this kind of rather non-communication, mm. which Mark's very good at. Yeah. And then the odd comment like, oh, you really are. <laughs> right. Which basically was... The C word. Yes. And it, it did, you know, Lee put up with this, and we all did in a way, but I mean, it was tough doing Laughing Star. Spirit of Eden was, in a way, quite joyous. I mean, looking back, there were certainly dark moments, but on the whole, it was such an adventure because yeah. none of us had worked that way before, having multiple multi track machines slaved together so you had unlimited analog tracks and yeah. stuff that you know in the 80s it was often quite common to have two studios sync together and get 46 tracks mm -hmm. and then have lots of outboard kind of digital but mm -hmm. in 87 when we started it we had the two studios sync together 46 mm -hmm. tracks synced to a mitsubishi 32 track digital which had 32 tracks plus we had five slaves tapes per song so we had you know five times 23 yeah times 115 yeah we had unlimited in those days unlimited analog tracks and although that was brilliant 
And I love a lot. Of, you know, I loved it because they gave me this incredible freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. So I was, yeah. a, you know, they encouraged me to bring back my learning of 1967 with when I was with Keith Grant, learning how they recorded a 50-piece orchestra with 12 mics and mm -hmm. all of that. You know, so it was really an adventure on Spirit of Eden. It just yeah. got darker as as time went on. You know. Yeah, it's. It's interesting you say darker too, because the the magic I think of that album is how much it captures um, a predominant sense of darkness, but with shafts of light, sun rising through the dark night sky every now and then. It, yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful depiction of that process. You know what I mean? Totally. Okay. Okay. Unlike anything you've ever heard before. Well, it was nothing like I'd ever worked on before. You know, the, yeah, the yeah. Nearest, in, in various things, I've, I've, the nearest I could put to it was Stomi Yamashita, who was a Japanese percussionist signed to Ireland. And I did various albums with him in the 70s. But we did this album in 76 called Go. Mm -hmm. And it was this remarkable, because it was rock and roll, but it was recorded as if it was classical. Mm -hmm. So we had Steve Winwood and Al Demiolo and Mike Shreve and Roscoe G. It was just like this absurd collection of musicians. But because we were working like in the dark and we had footage of the the moon landing oh. and everything oh, wow. just every night and we'd pick it up at the next point and the next night. So we were in this kind of completely false environment uh, with all wow. these Japanese uh, video guys who had all this NASA footage uh -huh. and the band just playing I say a, as if it was classical but it was rock in a way rock yeah. not rock and roll I'd never worked on anything like Stomu in 76 but then in 87 mm. Mark who kind of basically wanted to drag out of me a lot of the Olympic approach in the 60s traffic yep. how we you know all of that kind of era it, it was yeah i've never worked on anything yeah. we should uh we should establish that i i mean to me that's the key reason you got brought into this project you're giving mark a ride back to london in your car and tell you've told i've heard you you told me the story yeah. before so what's he says to you what as he's getting out of the car and you say what well the thing is just to back up just like a, a few weeks, um, 1986 was a terrible year for me. I mean, I was about to leave the business. Um, I had great difficulty in the 80s with the whole, you know, I came from the 60s, 70s, when you suddenly went into this rather cheap sounding digital and stuff, you know, drum sounds that were larger than life and horns on a keyboard. And I didn't gel with it particularly well. And, and then, because I did have some successes in the 80s with like China Crisis and King. And, but by 86, I'd kind of almost signed myself out and I hadn't worked for six months. And I was about to leave the music business. You know, I, it's like, well, it's been a good run. You know what I mean? We, we all thought, well, at, at 17, when I got into it, you kind of think, well, if I'm doing this at 30, you know, well, I was 36, so it seemed to make sense. Right. And, um, you know, I bumped into Tim Free Screen, which led on to this meeting with Mark in a pub in Stanmore. 
And he never talked about music. He never talked about anything other than a few politicians and a bit of football. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of really strange interview. But then I had to get back into town. So uh, when I said, well, great, you know, lovely to meet you, I'm off. He said, cool, can you give me a lift to a tube station? So he's in the car. And it's now like 5, 4.30, 5 o'clock. It's rush hour in London or outskirts of London. So in a way, I was just a driver as far, you know what I mean? I'm just driving Mark to a railway station. And in a way, the interview for a job happened in, in the car right. at that point because, he, you know, he asked me a lot more questions about my career at Olympic and the early days of Ireland, you know. And then uh, he said, oh, you can drop me here, you know. This, so I pulled over and he got out. And just as he was getting out, he said, so what sums up Olympic for you? And I went, oh, 1967, 1 a.m., mm -hmm. November. Mm -hmm. And he went, so who was that with? And he went, I went, traffic. And he just smiled and left, and that was it, you know. And it turned out, obviously, I've learned a lot of this since. I spent 13 years with him. His big hero was traffic. Mm -hmm. And when we went into Spirit of Eden, you know, he had these rules where we couldn't use gear that was kind of prior 1968. Mm -hmm. Uh, he wanted to work in low lighting, like his idea of traffic that I talked about. And um, I think I got the gig because I'd worked with Jimmy Miller and traffic as much yeah. as anything else. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. You, you know, you can you can put my CV up there with, you know, the fact that I kind of worked with Hendrix or the Stones or Robert Palmer or Bob Marley, all of that. But for, uh, for Mark, and I mean, I would realize this years later rather than Ben, in a way, that was not particularly important. You know, it, no. it, was, it was almost like, what's your DNA? And the fact that yeah. traffic, Jimmy Miller came up, you know, within a three-minute conversation, he was like, I think that was what nailed. I think gig. so, too. And it, it wasn't just that – it was the fact that you held your experience with, high, with traffic in such high esteem and that that's what came to your mind. And – in that moment and that was just the perfect answer to that question and you said anything else who knows what would have happened you know what i mean but the well, fact that yeah. both of you held yeah. such value with traffic is what brought it together i think well i mean traffic you know i'd worked you know when i got the gig at olympic i worked a month with keith grant who was doing these 50 piece orchestras to mix in as well to two tracks of a four track machine you know we uh -huh. did springfield leonard cohen these amazing sessions um but it was the first you know, and it's these things when you're very young, when I was only 17, the first rock session I got put on was Traffic. And it was yeah. Mr. Fantasy, actually recording the track Mr. Fantasy. Oh, my gosh. And Heaven's in Your Mind. And I just remember that, that whole setups because it was so opposite to our very bright 50-piece orchestras, reading scores, mm -hmm. you know, daytime sessions. You're suddenly into a night session where there's candles, the lights are out, there's friends hanging out in the studio. It was a different world, and I loved it. You know, that's mm -hmm. what I always held on to. There was the traffic sessions, the vibe of, like, Hendrix, um, and then into the 70s, people like Bob Marley, because there was always, a, you know, a lot of people dancing sure. around and working. Um, John Martin was a bit special for me anyway. Robert Palmer, who I did various albums with, but um, there was a certain kind of thing that was built into my head, and it was triggered. 
which I mean, 60 years later, I would still answer. It, it was traffic, you know, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Fantasy, Heavens in Your Mind. And then I got to do the whole of the second album. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a massive fan, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think back then, traffic and a band called Spooky Tooth were my. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Spooky Tooth is such an underrated band, but I love that. was that. Uh, Peter Frampton's band, right? No, it was what it was. Um, or uh, Mick was, Jones. Mick Jones yeah, from Corner. Luther Grosvenor, who went on to become Ariel Bender in Mott Hoople. Yeah. Um, it was a, just a brilliant kind of band from the 67, yeah. 68. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, mean, uh, I think, you know, it's tr tricky because I got into it so young. When you're 16, uh, 17 years old and you're in that environment, yeah. Yeah, some of those things have a huge impact, and all along the Watchtower and traffic were the, the two biggest. Just they were like, the ones. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so we should let's establish the album came out on September twelfth, nineteen eighty eight, but work began back in May of eighty seven. There were no demos. Uh, they didn't, to my understanding, from reading your book and Ben's book, there was no. Free. There were no, you know, tracks that already had been worked on. But at this point, as you mentioned, the band is really mostly Mark and Tim free screen. Lee is there as a hired hand, like you said. Paul eventually, I think, gets frustrated. Uh, the quote in the Mark Hollis book says that he was basically kind of out of ideas. He didn't really yeah, know how to contribute to what they were doing anymore. It, the thing is, I mean, I think since Spirit, uh, since Color Spring, it was very much like Tim and Mark. They just yeah. found this niche in the way they worked. When we went into Spirit of Eden, um, it was the, it was Tim and Mark, and I never heard any demos. But it turns out, oh. which never, never came to light until Mark died. But Tim uh. posted a demo uh. that day, so there were these demos that Tim and Mark had worked on at, at their house. Mm. So they had an idea of certain structures. I mean, we were okay. changing lengths of sections, editing, infilling, you know, so they were changing all the time. But there were demos of some of them, but we okay. never heard those. No one ever referred to them. Right. I never heard them. So as far as I was concerned, we had no demos. Right. And with Paul, you know, Paul always described himself as kind of bass performer. So, mm -hmm. you know, he would work out a part, practice it and then come in and play it you know and if tim and mark would go yeah that's great but can you make the dg or change it you go fine he would go away and practice it he wasn't like a session bass player in the yeah. sense of oh you mean this you know mm -hmm. and i think i mean he brought some brilliant stuff to to the table but i think you know after a few months of like doing the bass and coming up with every idea he could i think he literally had just like well you know yeah i don't know where it. we go from yeah, here i, I yeah. don't know where we go and that's when we yeah. started to bring in other bass players but i don't think then it was a problem for anyone you know i'd never remember any conversation where it was like oh that's a drag yeah. Paul, it yeah. was just that paul i mean he felt that he was treated a bit tough and i totally agree and i think lee was treated even worse mark and tim became a very strong unit yeah they, they overrided kind of everything in a way so mm -hmm. if paul had an idea they would listen but it wasn't necessarily going to go anywhere and if lee right. lee was the same all of us really it was like you could put these things forward but it always came down to 
Tim and Mark, mm. and, and ultimately Mark. Yeah. Um, so it, it it was was tough, but I think it's more in hindsight that you realise some of these things. At the time, sure. I was still adjusting to the fact that I had unlimited analog tracks. Mm-hmm. We were working in the dark. Mm-hmm. We had no demos. Everything seemed like a, 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 an impromptu adventure. Yes. Yeah. You know, impromptu adventure. Me. I like yeah. that. Um, Mark claimed later that he couldn't. He they couldn't tour this album because he couldn't recreate the songs even if he wanted to, according to him. Well, and there, uh, yeah, go ahead. There was, there, there was discussion about that, but it was the, the discussion was basically because if you had about, I mean, the, the, the thing is that the album um, does not have a lot of instruments, and there's a hundred tracks of instruments, but sure. A lot of them are snippets of organs yep. or hands or you know. So if you put them all together as a track, mm-hmm. there's not a vast amount of instruments on it. Is my thinking. So you know, with a nine-piece band, probably a couple of keyboard players, you know, a guitarist, bass player, drummer, and um, somebody on the variophone or a brass section, you could recreate it. But the discussion was always: Do we learn the finished album and then recreate that as the album? Yeah. Or do we go out and improvise the album? In which case, it's not the album; right. it's something else. So it was never going to become a kind of, you know, yeah. live thing. Although I have heard Mark's um, kind of um, memory thing that they had in the South Bank uh, back in 2019, I guess. Um, some of the original band people like Martin Ditcham and that they got together, they could recreate Colors of Spring yeah. pretty perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did attempt, and other people did attempt to do versions of parts of the album. Huh. Um, but I can understand how you, you know, it's like, do you learn the finished album and then go out with nine people, yeah. um, or do you just kind of not bother? And I think. Right. Because of the grief that Mark felt he had with your record companies, and that year on the road doing Colors of Spring nearly killed the guy. You yeah, know? and he hated yeah. he hated her, and he hated all of that. Yeah. So why would you do it? You know, it's yeah. that thing with the Beatles. Once you get to a certain point, it's like, why would you go out when you can make these, you know, make studio albums and not deal with all that? Madness? So true. So I would true. love to have seen it live. And, um, Me too. A, yeah. I have a feeling like I saw the who last night in concert they were here in Denver and they, they had the Colorado symphony on, on stage two. And so they were recreating parts of Tommy and Quadrophenia. And I mean, if, if someone, if some avant-garde uh, orchestra out there is trying to recreate Lou Reed's metal machine music or something like that for the stage, I would think somebody would want to do this. I mean, if Steve Reich, you know, I I love Steve Reich. I'm a big fan. And if people are out there trying to recreate his music in a symp- in a symphony environment on a stage, I'm imagining there are people out there right now just feverishly trying to figure out how to put Spirit of Eden on the stage. Well, there's a there's a French band who unfortunately I can't remember right now, but there's a French band of five people who who basically play you know Spirit of Eden or versions of and Laughing Stock and and do tracks from that. And okay. it, it's pretty Im- impressive. You know, they've got the main five elements, if you like. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The problem with Spirit of Eden and definitely with Laughing Stock is that you've got this um, 
maybe these 20 instruments, but you've got this whole background of noise. I mean, it's more relevant on laughing stock. Um, if you take a track like After the Flood, you know, there's air conditioning units. Yes. There's hums and buzzes and um, all put in as this layer of just noise. Yes. Which yes. When other things go against it, especially Martin Ditcherman, he's mad percussion that sounds like water after the flood to me has always been this kind of claustrophobic damp mm -hmm. you know it's just dripping with you know uh, all of that but um and on spirit of eden i guess we because i mean i'd never worked that way before obviously i don't think mark would have done tim was very reliant on things like the Fairlight for uh -huh. colors of spring so he was it was everything in a kind of the same box as it were very controllable very digital mm -hmm. and with my involvement with analog we will kind of all of us i think work in a very different way than we'd ever worked yeah. before yeah definitely and so yeah. you know it was a tell, slow progress tell me about we we need to establish what the studio looked like you're you've talked about it before and it's in your book and ben's book again just color the environment for everybody. Color is probably the wrong word because there was very no, no, little color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So every day you showed up for work at 11 a.m. and you worked till 1 or, yeah, until 1 a.m. What well, was your environment like? We we varied. I mean, we, we always started at 11 a.m. We would, so, which meant that for me and the assistant and most people would get there at 10.30. Okay. Uh, Betty, the tea lady, would make us all a cup of tea and coffee. And at 11 o'clock, the lights would go out. So we we're in pitch black. And it would stay like that till 11 o'clock at night. And uh, when we would usually go home, we were doing okay. kind of 12 a day. Obviously, some nights you might work more. But okay. because we had this unlimited amount of time, it seems, or an unlimited budget, to do 12 hours a day for five or so days a week was probably just as constructive as doing like 14 days yeah. on, the, on a day because it was very intense and we basically listening intently because there was no screens we're in the dark so all you've got left is what you hear so yeah. time of things sounds of things everything was done just by listening and to be honest with you 12 hours of that kind of intense listening you yeah. were ready to kind of go you know yeah let's hear, let's check this in the morning you know? yes and you drive home at night so you I only see while, the yeah. sun for uh you know a little bit every day yeah. on spirit of eden i mean i stayed in various kind of um b&b's or places in london but i did do a lot of driving backwards and forwards yeah. so yeah you leave at 11 you know oh. 20 you get back at 1 a.m yeah you head off again the next day at kind of you know nine it's crazy um okay so there are like oil lamp oil colors or whatever being projected on the wall and when i yes. think of those uh, am i am i correct when i think of those i think of like watching the who or grateful yeah. dead or someone performing at like the yeah. monterey pop it's festival totally, yeah yeah no yeah, totally pink, it's okay 1967 yeah you know, it's it's pink floyd it's yes i mean I, I did actually go to a couple of of kind of trippy clubs in toronto in 1969 and it was all oil yeah. projected that was yeah. uh yeah we had this oil projector that was in, uh, above the the desk it was stuck up in the corner and it 
pointed to the desk and the, and the speaker. So everything just gently moved. Mm-hmm. There was no other light in the control room apart from torches. Yeah. And then in the, in the main studio, we had, I mean, basically no light, although the, we had the option of a couple of angle poise. We had a strobe in a plastic see-through bucket, yeah. um, which most people didn't want. <laughs> that would drive uh, me crazy. A strobe light going on for 12 hours a day, every day. Yeah. I would lose I was, it. It was, it was the, I mean, I think when, when we decided, or, you know, Lee basically kind of set up the lighting, but when we turned out all the lights, Lee had this um, set of, from the stage, because it just come off Color Springs, so we had this stage set, and he had lights that were sound activated so he had them around the drums oh. so when he was doing his drum tracks there were these kind of blue red you know yellow uh-huh. light but otherwise there was eventually no light in the, in the in the main room which held 80 musicians it was quite a big room and he put this oil projector in the control room and turned out all the lights because it was interfering with what he had in the main room you know yeah and i thought when it happened it was you know it was just like well that's a fun day or two <sighs> I mean, wow! I never realized that we would be in that environment for, I mean, basically 11 months or spread over 11 months. You know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So it would just play with your head after a while. It'd be like, it's like water torture or something like that. Yeah, I mean, musicians were led in, you know, uh-huh. with the, Sean, the assistant would lead them in with a torch, yeah. settle them down, give them headphones, you know, I'd go out, position a mic, and then... They would play. I mean, we never really spoke to them. They oh couldn't see anything. Yeah. And the odd one that said, can I have some light? We would turn on the strobe. And oh. then five minutes later, they go, I'll do without the light. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wanted to, we're going to go track by track here in a second. But the last thing you just touched on the session guys coming through. I want to read something that's from the Ben Wardle book. It says a system, and you've just touched on this. A system was established. Session players would come in and be offered a cup of tea and then escorted into the darkened studio. They'd be played the track and given free reign to play whatever they wanted along to it. Now, when when I read that, when you say the track, is it a drum track? What What um, is the well, track that they're listening yeah. to? The thing is, originally, because we had to start somewhere, you know, Mark uh, and Tim both would go out originally and play a a bit of rough kind of guy guitar of something, even if it was just okay. in the verses, you know, Tim would be there, a bit of Hammond, or he'd just fix one note down with a bit of cardboard. So there was just this tone, but it was something to give Lee to play against. But once we had Lee down, we then added a bit of percussion. So we had a good rhythm thing happening. And we'd then try a bit of bass from Paul, you know, and then the odd extra instrument or get proper guitar from a tip tim and mark so when the musicians came in they did have something to play to i mean it was they had maybe a you know a 10 minute section but there would be drums percussion a a guitar even if it was here and there some kind of keyboard there would be a structure to it Mm -hmm. and they would just improvise over that so obviously the the more people that came in, there was more stuff that we could play than the next lot that came in. But initially, it was quite bare. You know? Yeah, just sparse. Yeah, it says this spontaneity came at a price to the musicians. No feedback was given. No niceties were exchanged. Mark wouldn't say anyone to any anything to anyone. 
you're quoted as saying. He wasn't like, look, guys, we're just going to send you a track and you can do whatever you want. There was not even that vague bit of information. And uh, so they just go in there. They put on their cans, the headphones, I'm guessing, yeah, play the I track. Mean, and they're just told, make up whatever you want. You know, when we when we sat at the SSL desk, you know, I was here. Then there was like Tim and then Mark near the window. And uh -huh. then my assistant was to my right. So we were like spread there. Yeah. And the talk back button, Tim and Mark never said a word. I mean, I knew some of the musicians, but even if I didn't, I'd go, cool, I'll send you the track. You know, uh -huh. I wouldn't, just as some kind of like, at least yeah. here it comes, because you don't yeah. want them to suddenly, you know. Right. Um, right. But when we got to the end of a take, because we used to do eight takes if we had promise of somebody, we'd do eight takes maximum. They, they couldn't do any more. When we got to the end of a take, it, it wouldn't be like, hey, great, great guy. You know, uh, we'll send it again. You know, just <laughs> the usual kind of stuff that you might yes. say. Of course. Uh, we're on tape, so there's a time to run back. But when it got to the end, it would just literally run back and you'd hear. Yeah. And then it would go into record. No one would say, Here's, here it comes again, or that was great. Let's do another. You know, there's none of that. Uh -huh. And after eight takes you know it was usually me but i'd go brilliant thanks very much mate sean will come and see you out you know, and <laughs> they were never allowed in the control room there was never any feedback to them yeah. and the thing is that some people love that you know there were characters like simon edwards who came in who basically did the kind of second half of bass on spirit of eden and all the bass mainly on laughingstock but once we'd run out of bass players and, and uh, I remember it with, you know, Paul obviously going first, but then we used other people like Joni Mitchell's husband and various kind of bass players came in. And there was a day when Mark kind of went, well, you know, I've, I've gone through all the bass players I know, you know, uh, <laughs> do you know anyone? And I went, well, I know this guy, you know, it was one of those because yeah. Simon, I put him together in a band in the eighties called Red Box. I love Red Box. Well, that was Simon Toulson Clark. And thank you so much for saying that because I spent three years putting that together. Oh, that, I, Simon's been on here. That's what it, their first, well, both their first two albums, but the first album is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I love it. Well, yeah. anyway, I, yeah. I did three years kind of, you know, getting it together. The oh, demo. good for you. I didn't know that. And then they signed to Warner Brothers and I was sacked, you know, in favor oh. of you. So it was a sad thing. But the thing oh, is, Red Bull. You know, I kind of did love them. And that was Simon Edwards. And then he went off to do that single Perfect with um, Mark Nevin, uh, Fairground Attraction. Which oh, sure, sure. And then, uh, so I brought him, you know, he's somebody I knew for a while. I knew he was a good bass player, but it was just like, well, we've been through all these people. So I brought Simon in. And the funny thing was that Simon, you know, we led him in, in the dark, put him down, got his bass, and he put on the headphones, and we ran him the track and he did nothing for like two minutes. He just listened and then he checked a bit of tuning and then he kind of played a note. And after about three minutes, Mark turned to me and went, this guy's fucking brilliant. <laughs> and That's Simon, what Mark was going for. <laughs> Simon stayed for the whole of the, the rest uh -huh. of the story. I mean, most of laughing stock you know he uh -huh. found his guy but the thing and yeah. when i you know talked simon's talked about it but then simon's thing was yeah it was just kind of 
now I was listening to, uh-huh. you, know, you know, but Mark loved the fact that the guy was actually, instead of just kind of, because some of the player musicians that came in, I mean, some were, you know, we had such brilliant musicians come in, but they didn't necessarily get it, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yes. And I, mean, I mean, Danny Thompson, without, you know, I'm not trying to do him down at all, because he's just this amazing bass player. And I knew him yeah. from John Mann days and Pentangle, loads of stuff I did that was, that, that was Danny Thompson. But Danny Thompson came in and he played kind of eight takes of double bass mm-hmm. through the whole of side one. So you got three songs plus those little intermediate things. So he had 24 minutes or something. And he played eight takes top to bottom. And all we kept were three notes. I wrote that down. He, he's quoted as saying that was the worst session of my life. Yeah. They kept three notes. And the funny <laughs> thing is that, you know, obviously, you know, although it's uh, in, in some ways the music business is quite small, but, you know, from my point of view, in line with musicians. So he went off to do another session the next day. And I don't know if it was with the kick horns. It was the second time, but it was with somebody who, and he turned around and said, I think I've just done the worst session of my life. You know, because <laughs> A, he didn't get it, but he played beautiful stuff. Uh-huh. But we only kept three notes out of eight times 24 minutes. Goodness. Goodness. So it's Gosh. four hours of music, <laughs> three notes. And we even moved those to uh-huh. somewhere that I thought was better. You know, it was madness. It and is madness. One was, um, Steve Gadd, yeah. many years later, when I was doing Mark's solo album, and Steve Gadd was brought in because he was here without uh, Eric Clapton doing kind of, you know, 18 nights at the Albert Hall or whatever. And, you know, Steve Gadd's obviously a brilliant drummer, but Mark knew what he wanted him to play. So he'd play him the part, and Mark and uh, Steve would go out there and play it. But then after maybe 15, 20 minutes, you know, he'd start playing Steve Gadd. So he'd throw in the odd thing. And Mark would stop it and go, no, 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 keep to the plan. Which, you yes. know, he just, when I was yes. there, it's just shit. Yes. Um, anyway, he goes, this was an afternoon session. He goes to sound check for Eric Clapton at the Albert Hall. Oh. He's with the kick horns. He goes, I think I've just done the worst session of my life. <laughs> You know, not everyone enjoyed no. the experience. No, Although, no. You know, for those that did, like Simon Edward, Martin Titchen, those people that actually got it yeah. had a book because they were yes. given total freedom. I mean, Martin Titchen, his sounds, a lot of Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock, the percussion, you, you don't think it's percussion. You think it's other things like water, yeah. Yeah. a synth. You know, he... He has. He takes kitchen utensils, and I mean, oh. he, those guys that got it were just incredible. I bet. Uh, and, um, I bet. Mark Felton, the harmonica player, he's another guy that was just. Yeah. Like, yes. So, Mark. Okay. So let's go track by track. There's only yeah, six, yeah. so we don't. There's a. Uh, there's not even a lot to talk about. But so the first song is the rainbow.
These first three songs, Rainbow, uh, Eden, and Desire, are sort of meant to be a piece. They sort of are connected with each other. Yeah. Tim's guitar riff, Tim Free Screen's guitar riff, was lifted apparently from The Pusher by Steppenwolf. It does sound very similar. And uh, he, this was, if I understand correctly, this was his first time ever being recorded playing the guitar. That was not his key instrument. No, no. That's quite right. possible. He okay. was a kind of more keyboard player. You know, Mark yes. is star and keyboard. Tim was more keyboard player. Okay. Um, and the whole process of making that, once we had this kind of basic track down, was that Tim would go out, whether it was keyboards or guitar, and he would do his eight takes, you know, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and they'd keep something or not. And then Mark would go out and do exactly the same. So for me, it was quite tricky because the end album, I wasn't sure who had played what, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, when I listen to it, it's just a guitar. But that might be made up of some of Tim, some of Mark, you know, yeah. some of uh, Robert, Robbie, uh, what's his name? Macintosh. So, yeah. I mean, it was, it's very hard to kind of, because the album feels like five guys in a room playing, um, it's actually so many more people in the room playing, but it's all mixed down and edited and just yeah. edit, uh, erased. So you end up with like two Hammond tracks and a guitar track, and it all feels like one person, but it, right. it really isn't. I mean, some of, no. the bass, some of the bass parts have got five different bass players and instruments on it. Oh from my gosh. Guitar on, which is a Mexican acoustic bass. So you have guitar on, you have double bass and you have various electric bass. And yet it's just the bass when you hear yeah. the album. Yeah. It uh there, there's a two and a half minute long intro that my understanding was recorded later and tacked on at the beginning. There's uh the playing somewhere I don't remember if it was your book or Ben's book that was talking about a lot of the drumming was done with rubber mallets on a tongue drum. I don't know what a tongue drum is, but it I, it sounds that way. Is that it, rubber mallet? Well, thing? Not really. I mean, um, it was a, a, a snare drum without the snares on oh, and okay. two toms. Uh, we had contact mics on the toms. We had a 57 on the snare, nothing special. Uh -huh. uh, a D12 on the bass drum. And we had the Neumann stereo head which is this kind of binaural thing uh -huh. which was standing in front of the drums as the overhead so there's about okay. five five tracks of drums um it, it he uh, lee just plays very quietly i mean yeah big big secret of spirit of eden was that we would turn everything up very loud and then people would play very quietly mm -hmm. so lee actually plays very quietly yeah so he, I think he's playing with, you know, as much with sticks as with beaters, but yeah. there's no snare drum. The toms are very subdued. Mm -hmm. The overhead is literally just from two stereo mics. It was a, a very basic, I mean, not as basic as laughing stop, but it was fairly basic. Right. Mark Feltham is the, is the harmonica player, which is for some of the, the songs in which he appears is kind of the secret weapon. I think of a lot of those songs because that, his just squonking on that thing is so gritty. And uh, and my understanding is that there was an X placed on the floor and he was told, don't move. And the microphone was probably three feet away. 
yeah. it wasn't well, right we, there. Yeah, no. In in Spirit of Eden was the first time that we got into like distant miking. I mean, it's something uh -huh. that came back from my training in the 60s at Olympic where we mic'd things because we didn't mic use as many mics. The mics would tend to be moved slightly back and, and cross cardioid is what they call it. Okay. But um, with, uh, with Marfell, uh, yeah, there was a mark on the floor and there was a mic that was probably three or four feet away, uh, but he had an amp, a uh, oh, little 12-watt okay. amp. And the thing was, it's like, you stay there because this is, you know, we, we spent hours getting these sounds. I mean, <laughs> there was one guitar sound that took five days to get. Oh my and that's 12 hours a day for five days, you know. <laughs> and so Mark's thing, it took a long time to get. And once we got it, it was like, right, you know, you mark the floor, you fucking stay there. Yeah, we don't yeah. want the mic is here. Right. We have the amp. And, I mean, he talks about it a lot because he said it was so in a way stressful for him where he couldn't move off this spot or move around much. Yeah. So he's doing all this amazing playing, but in a kind uh, of constricted way, which yeah. if you read Mark, that book on, you know, Perfect Silence, and that seems to be a thing of Mark's is to get great musicians and then constrict them. Yes. So whether it's a keyboard player who's got his fingers taped together uh -huh. or Mark Felton who can't move off this or yes. for me where you can't use any equipment that's prior to, 1967 mm -hmm. there were always these yes rules little, yeah which are which are subtle and at the time seem quite humorous mm -hmm. and then you when you, once you take that into the actual making of a record it's like this is mega you know, this yeah yeah it really is there's a sound of like a fan or a wind turbine or something like that sort of you know happening in the background at, at certain spots when you talked about recording the air conditioner earlier is that sort of maybe yeah. where that was no, coming it, from that's not in Ditchin. oh really yeah. okay he had wow. this um whether it's a saucepan or something but he had something where he could create this yeah. feeling of wind and it would speed up yeah and he would just sit down on the floor in a circle with all this stuff around him which was kitchen in with saucepans and um, you know, mixers and all kinds of stuff that he'd have around him. And then we would play the tracks and he, you know, he got eight tracks, you know, uh -huh. everyone gets eight tracks. So we'd play a track and he would just li literally pick up stuff and do what he thought was kind of fun at the time. Yes. You, you get eight tracks of that. You then got to go through. So that takes say, you know, if you do the whole side one, which we did a lot, that's four hours. Yeah. But to go through those eight tapes might take you two days. Of course. If you've got a list to every track and go, that is fucking brilliant. Uh-huh. You move that aside, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, go through all eight tracks. And when you've finished and selected what you want to keep, everything was erased. Yeah. I also admire, in, in hindsight, I admire Mark for just kind of going, right, this is what we want. Yeah. we've got it so get rid of all of that because otherwise we would have built up this vast even bigger yes. amount of information yes no kidding i saw you being labeled um as not just the engineer but the curator quote unquote because it was your job to to keep track of all of that stuff um yeah me, me and sean i mean sean did a wonderful job yeah. but it was, we had 48 reels of of 24 track machine uh, you know 24 track uh -huh. two inch for six songs so it was wow. you know there, there was a lot yeah. going on 
of us with no direction ahead of time. No one's saying play this. No, no, no. this is, I mean, yeah. that's what's funny, going back to your first question about meeting yeah. Mark. You know, yeah. When we sat in that pub in Stanmore, no one ever said, right, so we've got this idea of, you know, yeah. we never discussed. It, it, it all evolved, you know. Yeah. Day one, when Mark was sorting out his drums and his lighting and all of that, you know, Tim, yeah. Mark, and I were in the control, and we were talking about the approach, but it was nowhere close to to where it ended up, really. No, no. Because we didn't know that in six hours' time we would be in darkness. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like this. To me, because I was innocent on it, yeah. to me it was this unfolding adventure. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I just went with it. You know, Laughing Stock was a very different album for me. But Spirit of Eden was just magical. Yeah. And when yeah. you talk about those gaps... It, again, it sounds slightly cavalier, but Mark knew that between the gaps, he wanted a couple of minutes of right something. Yeah. So we left like two two minutes of tape at the front. When we then copied in our drums and our for each thing that we recorded, once it was mixed down and mastered, it would be copied into the mastered twenty four track tapes. Yeah. So we would slowly build these up. So we had this twenty four minute side that had a two minute intro a kind of one and a half two minute sections in between uh, the three songs so we had all yes. that on tape. so when i say that danny thompson would play side one we would play it from the top of the album and he would go through an intro a, a song a, a link a song yeah. you know yeah so, you know we were and the more we recorded the more you could experiment and work that way yeah yeah there's um the the album kicks off with uh mark says oh yeah the world's turned upside down and that's almost the last decipherable lyric you're going to hear for the rest of the i don't understand what he's saying half the time mm -hmm. there are moments in the song like i was mentioning earlier where it out of this darkness you can it sounds literally like a sun like the sun peeking through the darkness or rising in the morning it's a mental it's it's amazing there's these gentle piano chords there's shakers eventually lots of hammond organ yeah, dirty hammond. dirty harmonica solo yeah um i don't now steve winwood played some hammond on colors of color of spring but not on this he's not in no, there anywhere this, this was all tim and mark and so they, if we were doing a Hammond thing, they would both go out, do a bunch of takes, mix down what we liked. Tim would go out, bunch of takes, mix down. Mm -hmm. It was all pieced together. I mean, it, the thing is, it was done, you know, it's 35 years ago, isn't it now? Um, but it was done like you would make a modern record on Pro Tools where you yeah. cut and paste. And, but we weren't cutting and pasting in that sense. We had to do everything with offsets and feeling where it might go and because you're in the dark all you had left was you know the sound so mark would go you know there <laughs> we'd, we'd clock the numbers and offset things and move stuff around wow. so we could move stuff like a millisecond or two you know it was it yeah. was insane um that is insane but yeah um wow the yeah. trumpet in there sounds sort of chet baker-ish it ends with some squawks it's uh now and and like the something too that i think is kind of an overriding theme that people need to remember about this album my understanding is that as we were saying earlier none of this is being played 
from beginning to end, a squawk for, that someone did for some other song at some other time, a little snippet of that makes sense to be inserted into this song at this moment. No one planned that. It was all sort of created. It's like putting a puzzle together. But it's not a puzzle. But it's a puzzle you're creating as you're putting it together. Not yeah, a finished puzzle that you're following, you know? Yeah, each day when you've, you know, had a new mu musician in, because we went through a lot of spreading, we would get, you know, another bunch of stuff, which when it edited down and moved on to the master would be like, oh, okay, so that's another texture and other directions so the next person that comes in they're playing off so it was constantly evolving yeah. all the time you know? yeah yeah it um, is uh so track two is uh eden And it's one thing I thought was interesting was that it's uh, its name before being called Eden was Marine, which a lot of these songs have like other names that they are known for before the final name. And my understanding, I believe, I think Ben said this in the book that Marine is for Marine Tucker, Mo Tucker of Velvet Underground. Is that right? Well, it was actually Maureen. Maureen, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could be that. I mean, the joke with uh, Mark was that it was Maureen Lipman, who's a English oh. actress. But the thing is, with Mark's humour, you had to be very careful not to believe a lot of what he said in that sense, you know, because you go because we had these titles like you know Maureen and Snow in Berlin, and you know that became other things. We had all working titles. But if I was to kind of go to him, say Maureen, you'd go, oh yeah, Maureen Littman, great actress. Now that could be a complete piss take because he doesn't think she's a great actress or yeah, she's a great actress. You have no idea. And other people have said other things, but at the time when I was doing it, Maureen Littman was always the thing. Okay. okay. To, you know, Maureen Littman. Okay. I don't even know who that is. I'm gonna have to look uh, it up. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's probably what appealed to Mark. Yeah, I'm sure that's it. But um, no, we had all these weird working titles. Yeah. So when people when people quote Spirit of Eden and to a certain degree Laughingstock and say a certain title, it doesn't always relate sure. because I still know the like Norm. Yeah. Norm, yeah. Right. You still know the working ones. Um, yeah. The sun is sort of back out. I think on this song, there's Tim's guitar. I assume it's Tim. It's really nasty sounding in this one the everybody lines are so intense every you know everybody 
needs someone to live by, I think is what he says, which I don't exactly know what that means, but it makes sense in the intensity that he says it so intensely that you feel it anyway, you know? There's back to some like tribal drums. There's a buildup after all of these everybody breaks, you know, kind of slowly comes back some bass, but we don't know if it's Paul Webb's bass. We don't know who bass, whose bass it is, right? I'd have to listen to it to, yeah. to have any idea, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then there's these acoustic strings that sort of jostle before before he says everyone. And it's not, again, it's not like playing. It just sounds like someone almost like, I don't know, they just like touch the screen, the strings. And that's a sound that was left in every oh, yeah. time before he goes to everybody every time. A lot of a lot of the, the sounds. A lot of we kept a lot of mistakes. We get a lot of those like, uh, you know, if you you're going to strike something, you get a bit a bit hesitant. You know. Yes, that's we it. Kept a, we kept a lot of the what would be termed mistakes or things that you don't keep, and we got rid of some genius. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because you know, and it worked. You know, that's the thing. All the way through, the, this could have been a big disaster as a project. You know, uh -huh, you got unlimited uh -huh. money. You've got unlimited amount of time. You've got guys, six songs, pissing about, improvising. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be really terrible. And the, the success for me is that it feels like five guys in a room playing. Yeah, that's it. And it all feels real, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's it does. So It totally does. Whether it, you know, it could even be um, we had that violinist, Nigel Kennedy. Yes. He, he played on the album, um, mainly on the kind of intro and the links. But okay. He was also, you know, we'd play him stuff, and Mark w was very much saying, "So, what can you get out of the violin that I don't know about?" As it mm. were, you know. And he would, you know, at one point he took under his bow and, and managed to put it across the whole violin, so it struck every note and the uh -huh. main note was underneath, you know, to uh -huh. create the note sound. Also, ironically. Out of all the people that we had in the studio that weren't allowed in the control room, Nigel Kennedy was the one guy. Oh, really? Who was allowed to come in and listen to stuff and give an input and say, yeah. "Well, I could do this," you know. And <clears throat> out in the room in darkness was his Stratovarius that was worth five hundred thousand pounds, just sitting on the floor. <laughs> My gosh! Ooh, that's crazy. Um, okay, it's got a very sort of plaintive, you know, a calm outro to the song, and then we go into Desire.
were these songs always separate or were they I, 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 that's, maybe that's a dumb question because everything it sounds like a pastiche no it's right just, right from yeah right from day one when we had the you know the drum tracks percussion enough down to say this is a track yeah it, it was put onto the mitsubishi in order so you had the two okay. minutes intro track link you know track we it, it was it was always worked on as a yeah 24 minute side okay yeah. okay uh there's this great guitar lick in that song and if i remember correctly whenever you hear that guitar lick you remember seeing him perform play it on the stairs something like that so tell me what where your brain goes when you hear this it's yeah well it was if it's the one i think of the third track yeah 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 desire yep that that took it that was the guitar that took us like three days to to get the way we worked back then because we, everything had to be kind of in the room and real we weren't allowed to use compression or effects so we had the vox ac30 mark got a sound in the room we would put up five mics you know tim and i well tim's favorite my favorite somebody else's idea <laughs> somebody that, you know what I mean? we'd have five yeah. mics and so we'd yeah. go too bright uninterested we'd get it down to one or two mics and then we got it down to the mic mm. and then we fine-tune the guitar in the room and it took five days to get that sound madness it was yeah. actually we had people from the next door studio was, i think his name was callum mccall he was in a band called the bible and he phoned up at one point you know on the intercom and said uh -huh. you know i've learned the part if the guy's having a problem <laughs> you know, building was aware of mark yes. trying to get Oh but, my God. <laughs> but we eventually got it and then once we had the sound we kind of went right okay let's just put yeah. that aside and do something else because you know the last thing you want to do is actually the guitar <laughs> right uh, <laughs> but it was, it was yeah mark was just sitting on the the stairs that run up mm -hmm. the side of wessex to the roof but he was just sitting on there with his ac30 and our mic quite a distance six feet away or something and it is a remarkable sound but whether yeah. it is worth the five days and, and the eight thousand pounds it took to get <laughs> oh, my gosh. oh my gosh there are these distant drums that sort of give you the feeling like danger is coming or approaching and, and i wondered if that was being are timpanis involved at all here it sounds a little well, bit like no yeah, okay no, it's, it's all um lee's toms but hit okay. very 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 lightly so yeah all this low tone okay and with the whole of side one really mark uh, lee keeps playing on various sections uh -huh. and we kind of faded him out and then you go into a link uh -huh. and then and then we fade him back in so yes. he was always kind of there so he's there you're you're playing with our sense yeah. of danger yeah. anticipation with your own volume oh my gosh so we're, that we're all being manipulated yes that's it that's what but it's I mean, it's historic. So then the the sense of anticipation before these explosions of sound on that track in particular are incredible. And it's just a cacophony, especially near the end when it goes off into this, you know, banging of pots and pans sort of sound for a while. Is that now, uh, as we've established, that was not thought about beforehand. Do you remember, I mean, is Mark sitting there saying, you know what this song really needs? An explode every few minutes, an explosion of, of cacophony that uh, 
just unsettles everything. You know, no, it's funny. It, no, it's funny that you should say what we need is the explosion because <laughs> one of, one of Mark's humorous things, besides "Oh, you really are," uh-huh. was well, what we need is a bit of an explosion. <laughs> so it's not that far from from fact. Um, uh-huh. No, I think that the track very much grew kind of organically because you know once Mark had put that guitar on, yeah, um, Lee. Lee's drums are already down, so that whole end section is just Lee going off on that. Oh wow! Then once you know Mark puts the guitar on, it's like totally relevant. Yeah. And then with Martin Ditchum, um, we did see with Martin. It was he was right there from the beginning, being in a in a cupboard with a shaker, being okay. Lee's human timekeeper. So yeah, Mark would have a shaker at sixty beats a minute, and Lee would be in the booth playing his drums. And then as time progressed, Martin would be brought back in. It's like bigger shakers or yes. his water stuff or his uh-huh. utensils. And then at the end, he was brought in to do all that extra. They're, they're more cabasses that are kind of okay. loud and noisy, you know. Okay. But, um, it, it, it did evolve kind of naturally, a bit like, I don't know what the track's called, I don't know if it's 602. But the track on laughing the third track on laughing stock that goes into that new grass I'm trying to remember no, what before um before ascension? Our, yeah ascension yeah. yeah that's the same thing you just have this insane kind of momentum of mm-hmm. of power and noise you know but yeah. then just cut off you know that's it that's it. You have to play with dynamics. I think Desire might be my favorite song on the album. I don't know. There's a lot that I like on there. but um, And then I, if it's Tim or whoever, or Mark or whoever's playing just this nastiest, gnarliest guitar there at the end when any, everything kind of explodes is really special. So side two now, those first three songs, as we said, are sort of a piece. They're all connected with some, you know, connective tissue in between the songs. We go to in- Inheritance. I thought was interesting is there's a few seconds of silence at the end of desire and then a few more set 32 seconds of silence in total which was meant to uh, it, uh 
recreate the sense of turning over a record. Yeah, right? it was. You spent a long time with that thing of like side one, because Mark always saw things in, you know, side one. And so we were very analog and vinyl, even though it was the late 80s. So it was that thing of like, you get into position. That's why the album doesn't start immediately either. You know, you gives you a chance to, you know, turn on your CD or your album, yeah. sit down into your preferred position and absorb it. And then uh -huh. we would time out, you know, roughly how long to get up turn it over, you know, set it up, get back, you know, and, and um, those gaps were very important to us. They took us a long time to get. And uh -huh. the funny thing is that the, the first release in America, you know, once we'd given it to Polydor, uh, to EMI, they sent it to America, and instead of using our masters, they remastered it and put in two-second gaps in between everything. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, that could change later but no the whole idea was that you just move into your position for listening to a record you know because that's uh -huh. what it's all it was, uh -huh. it was to listen to it as a piece yes yeah and you can tell not, not in the modern age of spotify where you just download a track or something it was yeah it was an event you know beginning that, to end that gap was just to give you that car you'd been yeah. through a lot on that first mm -hmm. side it was to give you that time to just kind of, if in the old days, that's what yeah. we would have done, you know, yeah. give you that time. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I did with Mark with that, loves even his acoustic album, was to try and reintroduce that thing of, like, listening to an album in a, you know, I guess in a vinyl way, even if it's CD, but, you know, just that calm of, like, yeah. you put it on, like that's it, it. ultimate position, and you drift. If I asked you about any lyrics, would you have any idea what no, any of them are? It's funny this because, you know, over the last five years, especially uh, since Mark died, but there's been a lot of Facebook uh -huh. people that, you know, into yeah. Mark and talk to. And I'm a member of some of those. But um, I have the thing is, I have no idea about the lyrics because at the time of we caught, we, we, you know, 90% of the album was recorded before we did the lyrics. The lyrics That's true. The lyrics, we should say, was rec were recorded like eight yeah. months later. Yeah, pretty much the last thing that was put on. So you uh -huh. don't live with something for a long time. The lyrics are not that easy to hear. The writing on the cover is uh -huh. impossible to read. Uh -huh. So we obviously wanted to make it as difficult as possible. So I actually, apart from um, The World's Turned Upside Down, which I think yeah. is... Such a brilliant line, especially in hindsight. And a couple of things on I Believe in You. I don't actually yeah. know most of the lyrics. <laughs> I don't either. I, I forgot to mention in Desire, when it goes into those explosions, what if you came? Or I, I can't tell what he's saying whenever it goes into those, but they're powerful, whatever they are. Um, yeah. So anyway, Inheritance, um, it feels like church. In fact, some of the notes... Remind me even of the song of Hozier's song "Take Me to Church." There's more unintelligible lyrics in there. It's, is um, is the piano always Mark or like with every other thing? Yeah, there's no, multiple I mean, piano session people coming yeah, in and out. Multiple pianos. I would say my my feeling is that probably sixty percent of the piano is Mark, and about eighty percent of Mark is the guitar. Okay, but it's very hard to remember back. Um, yeah. Just because of everything we put up, sure. you know, Mark sure. would go and play, we'd bounce, Tim would go and play, we'd bounce. It was very hard to to really keep track on 
Yeah, I bet. There are some sound effects going on. These I call them cosmic sound effects. They sound a little bit like bugs or birds kind of twittering about in the background of inheritance. Well, again, some of the twittering is Martin Disham Uh, (laughs) mm -hmm. with uh, the percussion things. Uh, We didn't have any outside recordings of, you know, real life, real birds. Uh So it will be probably Martin Disham. That's got to be what it is. Clarinets and maybe oboes in there, sort of a new texture, it feels like, on this Oboes. And yeah. this amazing instrument, the Variophon, okay. which sounds, you know, we used to use the sax side of it, but that was, that's all over Color Spring, yeah. stock. it's a big, it was yeah. a big back then. But when, yeah, uh, and again, so the clarinet that's on this song, the guy playing it, whoever it is, is he even listening to a track of Inheritance? And coming up with a clarinet part, or is, could he be have been listening to anything, playing the clarinet, and then after the fact, someone said, "This song, Inheritance, needs this clarinet." Yeah, that's a tricky question because um, mm. I have a bit of a mental block about doing any kind of um, woodwind uh, overdue sessions. Mm. You know, I don't actually remember that in in the process. I mean. Uh-huh. When I looked on recently, some of the credits and things, we obviously had them, but yeah. I don't remember that on, on Spirit. Okay. I was just curious. I remember, yeah, I remember the Variophon. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, I know. When, you, when you get into the weeds of realizing that almost everything you're hearing may or may not have been re- performed with the intention of being where you're hearing it right now, every sound becomes up for grabs every yeah. sound you're wondering i don't where who knows where this came from like i said this is a puzzle that's being put together without a picture telling you what the end result is supposed to look yeah. like it's just crazy uh the song ends with the line heaven bless you which is a interesting line again going back to kind of the dichotomy of of mark hollis he says several times in the in the ben wardle book that he's not religious but he admits to being somewhat spiritual which is interesting for a guy like him who seems so kind of snarky and sarcastic a lot of the time to have this other side of him that is humbled or or i don't know softened i guess by spiritual ideas and so just throwing that line out there for a guy like that feels like a a bold move um yeah all the time i spent with him i never thought of him as being you know a, a devout christian or any of that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i would have thought it because of his humor and his kind of essex east end um, yeah. anti stuff that religion would have been a bit of a, a no no we never yeah. never discussed it it is weird especially in the last 5 10 years where such a spiritual thing has been put on mark and, and yes. the album. i never took it that way myself although when you yeah. listen to some of the lyrics i guess you could interpret it as being well definitely spiritual not i would say religious but yeah it's interesting it, it just occurred to me i know that um he was a big jazz guy and when you listen to something like john coltrane's i love supreme album like for instance i used to live in the bay area outside of san francisco there's actually a church of the church of john coltrane in san francisco and i went and visited it one sunday and they just there's a 
group there that plays a love supreme and there's a preacher who kind of walks you through it and it's a big you know celebratory kind of black audience there and knowing that that piece of work was intended as a as a i don't know a, a spiritual or a, or a christian or a godlike declaration or or pronouncement you you bring you project onto those kinds of things your own spiritual nature and your own spiritual feelings as well and spirit of eden reminds me of that kind of a feeling you don't it's esoteric there's nothing direct about believe in god or jesus christ or anything like that but there's a spiritual feeling to it yeah. that might bring someone who's who is so inclined closer to god just as a love supreme might have done that enough to build the church around you know no, what i mean I yeah i totally agree and i yeah. think with like i believe in you yes yeah you know, has a perfect kind of connection with very that. much so So I believe in you is the next song, and that's probably the song that was closest to us. I mean, I think it was a single. It probably sounds closest to a single. One thing that I think was interesting when I read in your book is um, you were talking. <laughs> you were talking in here um, at the beginning of December. We recorded a twenty-five member adult choir for "I Believe in You." I thought it sounded absolutely beautiful, but the next day, Mark, after listening to playback, said it sounds too good. Can you erase it? And <laughs> he didn't want it to sound too good so instead later we re-recorded the parts with six 12 year old boys the choir of chelmsford cathedral that's what's in the background of of i don't believe in you or i yeah. believe in you yeah yeah, yeah. So, um he he made this comment about um which won't mean much to you but he he said um yeah it sounds too good it sounds like the um cliff adams and i didn't know who cliff adams was <laughs> yeah <laughs> they, they were this kind of 60s easy listening uh, kind of vocal quartet yeah. okay you know, multiple vo vocals so uh, it was it was a kind of a in a subtle way it was a real put down you know it sounds mm -hmm. sounds too good sounds like the clip it was like wow okay. but yeah. i still thought it sounded i mean the, you know it sounded beautiful you know yeah. i totally agree with him once we replaced it with the 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 young guys it's so much more um ethereal and religious and just special yeah, yeah. but the original was pretty good but you know that's in a way for me the magic of mark was that yeah. even something that's cost a lot of money and just sounds brilliant it's like no it's not right yeah 
He, yeah. you know, he, he knows that. Everyone else is kind of going, but it's wonderful, you know. It's yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah. he's quite happy to just erase because he erased so much stuff. Because I, I think partly because he, he didn't want to have the problem with Color of Spring where somebody could come in and remix stuff. Mm-hmm. So anything that we didn't use on the album was erased, which I think probably is was a good was a good move, you know. Yeah, it um, the first line now. My understanding is that this song is probably about his brother Ed, who died of drugs. The first line, if I understand it correctly, is heroin. My I've seen heroin. I've seen heroin for myself. Yes. Yeah. And and. It's, uh, you don't think of Mark writing a song like that about drugs or whatever and saying it so blatantly, but he does. There's a moment at the 46 second mark. It's been just this light kind of almost hi-hat drum tapping so far. And then there's a squonk, a bomb out of nowhere. And I wondered, there's in the description of the, in the, what I've read about the recording, there's a moment when Tim Freeze Green trips over his guitar lead and it makes a crash sound and that was used at some point and that's where i like to believe that was inserted but i don't know do you know where that part is even inserted no, in the I, album? I would have to listen to the album okay. again to spot it but okay um, yeah out of nowhere I, to break up this very light hi-hat tapping yeah. is just this bomb out of nowhere but it it works because <laughs> i i believe in you that the drums were, were, were um copied many times on the okay. multi-track to degrade them mm-hmm. it's mark again you know we put the drums together and mark kind of goes it sounds too good which was yeah. his classic line which initially i had no idea what he was talking about and then slowly understood but it took me a, a few months to understand what he meant by this it sounds yeah. too good yeah and so we copied it until we got this kind of lo-fi you know element mm-hmm. but um that was put together very much like the rest. The, the okay. solo section in the middle shows you with, with all these just like one or two notes of instruments to kind of create a solo. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think it is about his brother. Okay. And I find it interesting the again going back to working titles versus end titles and stuff like that. I find it interesting that this song is called "I Believe in You," when the previous album had a song called "I Don't Believe in You," and for, and la, um, his is it Laughingstock that has the song "The Color of Spring," which is yeah. the name of oh, a, yeah. of the album from two ago. And, and I'm by thinking too is if oh is that the one you were thinking of earlier? And the thing is is that when there is no there's no return repeated lyric that would give you an obvious title to some to these songs. Why name a song "I Believe in You" when you already have a song called "I Don't Believe in You"? It just feels odd. Well, I think that's the, the connection that the, the, the more religious of us mm-hmm. have laid on mm-hmm. Mark as being like, it's a religious thing because now yeah. he does. Okay. Do yeah. You know, I think. Got it. Big, like, yeah. a, like it's a journey. Yeah. A spiritual I journey. I know that um, I was surprised when we did the solo album and he had a track called Color of Spring, which had nothing mm-hmm. to do with the original album, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was a great track. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was all yeah, an intriguing guy. I mean, that's mm-hmm. all you could say. Really. That's it. There's um, again more sound effects. It feels. I know you guys say plectrums. We just say guitar picks, but it feels like you can hear 
ple- the plectrum hitting the strings per- yeah, very yeah. purposely. It's not that you hear the sad, the noise is the plectrum hitting the strings, not what the strings are playing. Does that make sense? And then yeah, there's also yeah. like this bad organ note somewhere in there, but that may, ch- and there's a sense of like machinery sort of going back to that air conditioning sound worrying in the background. There's that was the qu- one last question regarding that choir. The choir was at brought in at some point specifically for this song, or was it another thing? Where yeah, no, it was. It was all about this song. So okay. the original adult choir came in, and I think it was kind of early December or something like that. Okay, uh-huh. and it was Mark who raised it or didn't like it. Yeah. But then because of Christmas, it took us till January or February to get the the young lads. But no, it was always for just that song. We never tried okay. them on it. Okay. Um, well, last song is wealth. Um, I actually have very little to say about this song. It's kind of, it reminds me just of like a coda. In fact, it reminds me, I was thinking about, so in our church, there's a closing hymn and the whole congregation sings the hymn. And then someone gets up to the stand and says a closing prayer. And then the organ usually plays outro music as people are exiting the chapel. That's what this song reminds me of. I totally agree, actually, yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? After what you've been through, it suddenly feels like, you know, with the electric, just this kind of calm. Yeah. Out that just takes you off. Yeah, it's exiting you. I, or I was thinking too, at like maybe the end of a funeral, you know, the funeral's over, everyone's in a chapel or a meeting room of some kind. And now we've all been through this emotional meeting together. There's just an organ playing some light music while we all sort of socialize and slowly exit the room. No, That's does, what this yeah, song that sounds like to me. Yeah. It does have that kind of relief after. Yeah. What, yeah. yeah. Totally agree. Um, it's a bit the, like... On laughing stock, you've got new grass, which I mean, yeah. I didn't listen to for many years, but I mean, that also just kind of comes out yes. as this, you know, buoyant, mm-hmm. positive, yeah, fun-loving track after what you've just been through. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of um, shapeless, I guess. Uh, otherwise, there's not like a decipherable hook or 
um, you know, moments that stand out like there are the explosions in Desire or the, you know, the sound effects or whatever, but it is just this coda, this outro music for something. Um, all right. Well, that's, uh, those are all the songs. I mean, it's the, one of the most masterful brain breaking pieces of art that's ever been put to record, put to tape. You know what I mean? Well, it, I mean, it's so nice that 35 years later, it, you know, over the last five, 10 years, it's had this resurgence and yeah. suddenly became you know, a success or a classic album or whatever. Yeah, that's At it. the time, you know, it was, you know, termed a failure. We went through a lot of grief with record companies for like 10 years. Yeah. Um, so from that point of view, it's really nice to know that. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a huge piece of work. I know. Yeah. And, and to think that. <laughs> This was all done on EMI's dime. The EMI just let you guys do whatever you wanted for nearly a year, racking up. And I guess they just had no one at any point came in and some. Oh, and no, like, we, well, we had the, the odd A&R guy would obviously turn up at the studio. Yeah, but yeah. When, when, you know, because of our environment in the dark and phones turned off and stuff, we'd get a message that, you know, they, they were at the door. We, Mark, Tim and I and Sean, we'd all go down, take the guy up the road, you know, 400 yards to the pub, buy him a pint, come back. And when he kind of expected to come in and hear something, we'd go, or Mark would go, it's great to see you. Take care. <laughs> we'd go in and shut the door. So they actually never heard anything for the whole time. Oh, my gosh. We there, oh which, my gosh. in hindsight, was maybe not the best approach because wow. they hated it um because they were so unprepared but yeah. uh, no, no one yeah. ever heard it we were this like weird little team yes uh, <laughs> doing this team. thing being offered <laughs> therapy and all kinds of stuff that's it and uh i love you close out the chapter of the of the album in your book saying your wife says something to like if, if you ever work with those people again we're done or whatever and sure enough you were right yeah. there for the laughing stock and then the solo album I, later. I mean yeah she said if you work with them again you move out and then that's it I started doing laugh stock i did sadly move out and live yeah. in london yeah oh boy yeah. well um thank you phil for talking about this important oh. album with me i mean it's i wanted to document just as these people, you and Ben, are writing books about this band, this stuff needs to be documented. And I wanted to be the guy who, doc who documented with you some Spirit of Eden. So thank yeah. you for talking with me. No, at all. Thank you very okay. much. Okay. Of course. Maybe we'll do this again and we can do Sneaking Sally through the alley next time. Oh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> okay. Me too. Have a good one, Take Phil. Care. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. There you have it, Phil Brown. I just think that's amazing. And I would encourage you, if you're interested, to get both of these books. Obviously, Phil's is great because it doesn't just talk about Talk Talk. It talks about everything he's ever really worked on. Every chapter is a new album or a new project. It is fascinating stuff. There's Robert Palmer in there. There's all these other people, too. And then uh, the Ben Wardle book is fascinating. You probably have to care about Talk Talk to really get into it, but as everyone knows, they're one of my favorite bands ever, and so this was a really masterful work for me. Um, I am so grateful this book exists. When Ben was on earlier this year, I hadn't read it yet because it hadn't come out, but now that I have, it's amazing. Anyway, pick these things up and give Spirit of Eden a listen, if nothing else, because it'll blow your mind. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.